This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Hello there. Out there in political land, very exciting stuff going on this week. Uh, Not only, obviously, at the national level with the confirmation hearing and the possible result this weekend on uh, Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court, but also here in Michigan with all our political campaigns. Uh, More polls came out this week. I know people may be saturated with polls. that have come out in more profusion, I think, this year than ever before in Michigan history. Let me try and put a few of them in some context um, so we get some idea of whether there's an overall trend or non-trend and whether or not uh, there's been uh, some difference uh, accounted for mainly by methodology or timing or the way questions are worded. The Detroit News on uh, Thursday came out with a poll, WDIV-TV and the Detroit News, uh, done by what is called the Glenn Gariff Group. Rich Shuba is the principal pollster with the Glenn Gariff Group, a very reputable pollster. By my count, this was the seventh poll that has been taken on the governor's race in just the past two weeks. So let's keep that in mind. There have been six previous polls over the uh, previous two weeks. Um, This is the seventh, and uh, it really shows no change. Um, Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic nominee for governor, uh, is ahead in this poll by 12 points. I think it was 47% for Whitmer to 35% for the Republican nominee, Bill Schutte. Now, that somewhat uh, counters the previous poll a week ago by Epic MRA, which found that Whitmer's lead over Schutte was only about eight points, and that was about the narrowest the gap has been between Whitmer and Schutte, uh, frankly, all year long. Um, Starting, you can go back to, like, January, and any – purported matchup because we didn't really know who the nominees were going to be until the August 7th primary between Whitmer and Schutte, uh, always had her ahead by eh, half a dozen points anyway, maybe a little bit more. And for the last two weeks, uh, every poll has shown her ahead by anywhere from eight to 14 points. Uh, the most recent poll before the one that came out Thursday, as I said, was the Epic MRA poll a week ago. And that showed that her lead had shrunk, if that's the right word, down to 8%. But now in this poll, it's back up to 12%. So there's not seemingly any momentum uh, on the part of the Shooty campaign to narrow the gap. I know Bill Shooty was our guest on the program uh, a week ago. He's still ebullient about his chances. He said there are 39 days to go, and I'm going to get it done, and I'm going to win. Uh, We're a week later, and uh, there's still no sign of that, but Michigan uh, gubernatorial races have a history of closing in the final uh, days 
Uh, and certainly there are more than just days left between now and November 6th. There's uh, a month. Uh, and John Engler pulled off a massive upset in 1990. I think everybody knows that over Jim Blanchard. Nobody expected Engler to win. And he ended up winning by 17,000 votes, about 1%. Uh, back in 2002, uh, just 16 years ago, Jennifer Granholm won. But her margin over Dick Posthumus, the Republican nominee, was only four points, whereas all the polls had showed her ahead by much more than that, by, uh, guess what, about the same margin. Gretchen Whitmer is ahead of Bill Schuette right now. So uh, a lot of time left. Uh, John James, the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate, is still trailing his um incumbent Democratic uh, opponent, U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, by high double digits. Uh, I say high, I don't mean like 80 or 90 percent, but I mean higher than the double digits that Gretchen Whitmer leads Bill Schuette in in the gubernatorial race. I mean, every poll taken over the last month has shown John James behind by anywhere from 14 percent up to as high as 23, 24 percent. Um, John James is now up on TV with some ads. That's been his big problem. Uh, he spent so much money winning the primary. He raised and spent $5 million. Very impressive for a first time candidate running against the self-funding millionaire, Sandy Penzler. Uh, John James got it done in the primary with a little boost from uh, Donald Trump at the end, uh, by about 10 points, uh, 55% to 45%. But then the cupboard was bare. And how do you replenish the coffers? Whereas Debbie Stabenow is unopposed for the Democratic nomination, and she's been able to hoard her cash, her campaign kitty, uh, right up until the time she needed to start spending money, uh, which really wasn't until after the primary, and now she's ratcheting it up. She probably has at least, I would say, 14 or $15 million she's raised uh, so far, and she hasn't spent anywhere near all of that, and she'll probably raise more. So, uh, you know, not a good picture for either Bill Schuette or John James at this point. When we look at uh, Secretary of State, it's kind of more of the same. Uh, Jocelyn Benson, uh, the Democratic nominee, is ahead of her Republican opponent, Mary Trader Lang, by I think it's 41 to 29 percent. That's a 12 point lead. Um, the only race where it looks like it might be close, uh, certainly it's narrowing rapidly, uh, is the attorney general's race. Now, Dana Nessel, the Democratic nominee with the wind at her back, uh, if in fact it is going to be a blue uh, surge or wave this year. Um, she's ahead 39 to 32%. That's 7%. Uh, Epic MRA a week ago had it only 6%. Now that's, you know, about half the size of the lead that, uh, uh, Gretchen Whitmer has over Bill Schuette and that Jocelyn Benson has over Mary Trader Lang. And, uh, there are a lot of undecideds in that race, obviously, uh, 30% of the voters in the attorney general's race are still undecided. One of the reasons is that neither Tom Leonard nor Dana Nessel really have the name ID that you need to make 
these numbers that meaningful, uh, meaning that they can be defined by their opponents or by opposition ads taken out against them. And Tom Leonard has come up with some pretty effective uh, ads against Dana Nessel. I think that's cut down her lead. There's also been a lot of turbulence in her campaign. She's uh, fired and uh, hired uh, at least, I think, three campaign managers. Other people have quit her campaign. Uh, apparently, there's uh, not a happy uh, campaign headquarters there in Nestle land, but uh, she is the Democratic nominee, uh, and she's got a very progressive agenda. Uh, she's got some groups firmly in her corner, uh, like the LGBT community, and uh, we'll have to see how that race evolves between now and November 6th. Uh, if we look at uh, what is called uh, capital insiders, uh, people uh, who are either lobbyists or uh, politicians themselves or legislative staff or news media in the Capitol, a poll was taken by uh, Deno Research and Resh Strategies this week. Uh, this is really just being uh, publicized this uh, on Friday by the Friday Morning Podcast. I'll tell you more about the results of that poll later, but we're going to take a break and then come back with a special guest who started out in northern Michigan. listening to the political insider with bill ballinger on mtn here's bill we're back and we've got a special guest today paul brown who is one of the two democratic nominees for the university of michigan board of regents running against two incumbent republicans uh on a board which is now five democrats three republicans we'll talk about that more later but Paul Brown has a fascinating family history, uh, independent of his own accomplishments, which are considerable. Uh, his father and his grandfather, both. Uh, Paul Brown, welcome to the Political Insider. Thank you. It's, it's an honor to be with you. Uh, let me just start by asking you, uh, you are uh, from uh, northern Michigan, I think Petoskey, right? You were born in Petoskey? Yep, born in Petoskey and spent my K-12 through in Marquette and Petoskey. Graduate of uh, PHS. Go Northman. Okay, go. And by the way, didn't you do some skiing there? <laughs> I, I did. Um, it's kind of the, you know, the town sport. Um, we're not hockey up there in the winter. We're skiing. And, and yeah, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a thing that Petoskey in particular takes part. And I was lucky enough to win an individual state championship, mostly just chasing my friends and family around is, is how you learn. I, I don't think I was born on skis, but pretty close to it. Are you still skiing nowadays? Well, uh, now I you know, <laughs> ski with one of my two kids between my legs and having my back <laughs> scream as I try to make it to the bottom without collapsing on them. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I, I want to mention at this point, you're running for the University of Michigan Board of Regents, but... Uh, there was another Paul Brown on the University of Michigan Board of Regents uh, several years ago. Who was that? Who was that? 
That's a very close relation. That 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 is my uh, was my father. Um, he left. He was on the board for 24 years, and he left the board a uh, quarter century ago. Uh, but he was a, a true public servant for the people of Michigan. Yeah, hard hard to uh, realize that it was 25 years ago because I remember <laughs> when he was first elected and. Yeah. Before he was elected to the University of Michigan Board of Regents, uh, he was the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor in 1974 when Sander Levin was running for governor uh, against Bill Milliken, the incumbent Republican. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. Sandy, uh, Congressman Levin, ran for governor twice, both very close elections. And the second time, he chose my dad. Um, hoping, I think, uh, to put someone on the ticket that was a businessman and from somewhere outside of southeastern Michigan. And, um, you know, Sandy is someone I've admired my whole life. Again, a true public servant. He's a real mentor to me. Yeah, I think, uh, didn't you go over the Mackinac Bridge uh, with Sander Levin? Maybe you don't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) I remember it in, in pictures. I joked that I started my political uh, volunteering life at 18 months, riding on Sandy Levin's shoulders as he walked over the bridge uh, on the Labor Day bridge walk. Wow. Well, even before the two Paul Browns, there was another uh, Brown, but his first name was Prentice, your grandfather. Can you tell us a little bit about Prentice Brown and his incredible history? Well, thank you. Yeah, he's he's uh, was really an incredible Michigander, an incredible Uper. Uh, grew up in a, a broken home in St. Ignace, and uh, his father was a small town lawyer and the county prosecutor. and And my grandfather, Prentice, went on to um, be the county prosecutor and then congressman from the UP, and then the only U.S. senator ever from the UP. Uh, and he was, he was a brilliant man, especially when it came to finance and, and he really helped save out of the community banks, uh, in, in Michigan and the Midwest and ended up writing most of the legislation that reorganized the banks coming out of the depression. And then after his single term in the U S Senate, I think he was elected in the second Roosevelt landslide in 1936, he served through 1942, then the Republicans caught up with him, but then he went on to even bigger and greater things, didn't he? Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, again, he loved Northern Michigan, and that was his home on the Straits. And like like a lot of people growing up and, and as an adult, he knew that we needed a bridge to connect our two great peninsulas. Uh, no one was able to do it uh, up to that point, and. You know, history repeating itself. Uh, back then, we had a Republican legislature that wouldn't spend a dime on investing in infrastructure. And so he put together a, a board privately, raised the money, $100 million privately uh, by selling bonds, and built the bridge, in essence, privately, and then gave it to the state for free. Um, and those bonds paid off using just the tolls. Uh, on time, and uh, and the bridge came in under budget, and we've been the beneficiaries of it ever since. But he's, we're all very proud of, of of that part of his career. Yeah, didn't he work pretty closely with Stuart Woodfill uh, of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island? They were allies in this effort to get a bridge built, right? They were. 
were very much so. And um, Soapy Williams, the Democratic governor at the time, was also an ally. Uh, uh, Mr. Mott uh, from Flint and Fisher from the NBD fame were also great allies in, in helping them get that done. And the Mackinac Bridge Authority, well, wasn't your grandfather maybe on that to begin with, kind of running the bridge? That's right. It, it, that, the, 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 the board, the company, so to speak, that he created to, to fund and build the bridge, uh, he was the chairman of that board and president of the company, and then that morphed into the Bridge Authority, and he was chairman of the Bridge Authority for many years. And if those of you that are familiar with the bridge, as you cross it, uh, the toll booths on the north side, uh, there's a there's a uh, administration building there, and it's, there's a plaque with his bust on it that says, you know, Prentice Brown, the father of the Mackinac Bridge. Uh, but there are a lot of neat things on it. My, for those of you, a little factoid, uh, my father, who was he, very young at the time, uh, the family story is that he was presented by my dad, or by my grandfather, several choices for colors, and he chose cream. My, my father got to pick the colors of the Mackinac Bridge, cream and green, and he did it because uh, one of his favorite sisters, he had six uh, brothers and sisters, was at Michigan State at the time. And so that's why he chose the color. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, another interesting fact is when the uh, road authority built the I-75 coming into the north edge of the bridge, uh, they wanted to sculpt in grass the the slopes uh, on the edge of the of the highway and my grandfather said no it's the up i want it to feel rugged uh this isn't landscape and i want them to know they're in a different place and so to this day you'll notice that the limestone is exposed in kind of you know kind of 20 foot cliffs as you depart uh the bridge driving into the up amazing i don't yeah. think most michiganders uh realize that or they take it for granted or whatever uh, I want to ask you about something else totally different, but it maybe starts with, uh, some little hobbies and, uh, extracurricular pursuits in your youth. And that is spear fishing, spear fishing. Oh, and I think yeah. you actually became so good at it that didn't you once hold the record, uh, for spear fishing carp? <laughs> Gosh, you dig deep. Uh, yes, until a couple of years ago, I was the world record holder. Okay, for, well, let's uh, let's stop uh, here. Fishing yeah, let, let's stop here and take a short break and come back and we'll talk about the spearfishing champion. Great, great. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. Regrettably, I had to cut off uh, Paul Brown in the middle of his description of his uh, world record-holding spearfishing carp championship record. Uh, he was describing it uh, because we had to take a break. I, I cut him off, but I want him to continue to tell the story. I mean, so what? You started spearfishing up there. Uh, what did you do? Get practice in inland lakes or what? <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. You know, when you grow up in northern Michigan, I think our closest mall was about four hours away. So besides playing football, baseball, and ski racing, you spend a lot of time fishing and hunting, which is something I, 
I still love to do, and we're always looking for new ways to do it. And so the spearfishing I do, which most people probably aren't familiar with, it's more of an ocean activity, is I have a very rudimentary spear with a some type of, you know, so to speak, rubber band on one end of it, and you just with a snorkel and goggles and fins, you do a breath hold and you swim as deep as you can and you sit as long as you can and you stalk the fish in essence underwater and uh, there aren't many species that you're allowed to spear in the in in Michigan, but the carp is kind of the biggest and the most exciting and and yeah, I was lucky enough to to get some big ones and one was a world record and whenever I was feeling too good about myself, my friends always reminded me that. You know, shooting a, getting a carp is like the equivalent of getting a possum. No one, no one really cares. <laughs> well, also, you didn't uh, actually get the carp in northern Michigan, right? Didn't you get it down in Ann Arbor? That, that's right. That's right. Strangely, I think the water being, you know, cold and uh, and, and not as much biomass in northern Michigan, but it's actually the carp downstate. Swimmers beware. They get really big. And I got it in what we call the Barton Barton Pond, Barton Lake here, just north of Ann Arbor. And yeah, there are some big ugly carp in in that uh, lake, and I was lucky enough to get one of them. Well, now you got it, but then uh, somebody I think that you go spearfishing with, or used to anyway, then didn't he uh, and you go out and break your own record uh, in another downstate it, lake? He did. Uh, my good friend Dean Kierlick, uh lives on Orchard Lake, which is also full of really big carp. And I was with him at the time, and we, for safety reasons, we have one go down and one stay up, and he disappeared into the depths. And when he came swimming up, he was holding the, one of the biggest carps I'd ever seen in my life, and I knew my world record days were for sure. <laughs> well, at least hey, records are made to be broken. You know, you that's had right, it for a while. Right. Uh, look, let's turn to some serious stuff. Uh, you're running for the University of Michigan Board of Regents. Uh, what is your vision for the University of Michigan going forward? And have they made some mistakes or have some things happened over the past several decades that maybe you think uh, could be corrected or changed or improved? Uh, what What's your uh, viewpoint on all that? Well, yeah, you know, mistakes may be too harsh. Uh, they've not performed up to the standard that the people of the state of Michigan deserve as taxpayers and students. Since my Republican opponent has been on the board, tuition for in-state students has gone up over 600%. The percentage of African-American students at the University of Michigan has gone down by 50%, and it wasn't very good to start with. Uh, and just as troubling, for the first time in the 200-year history of the university, less than half the students are from the state. Um, these are all failures. Uh, it's not what this university was created to do for the people of Michigan. It's really it's, it's owned by the people of Michigan, and it needs to serve the people of Michigan. And we, we must uh, find a way uh, to do it in an affordable way for, for our families. And, and we're not doing that now. Well, okay, let me point out, to be fair, uh, the two Republicans that are running for re-election this year, Andrea Fisher-Newman and Andrew Richner, uh, Republicans who have been either only tied, that's the best they've ever been able to do, and I think actually they've been in the minority uh, almost all the time. They've been on the board uh, for 16 years. So you had a majority Democratic board and so all these things you just described happen with a majority Democratic board. Uh, how can you, as another Democrat, if you get on the board, 
uh, change things. I mean, you're just going to be serving with the same Democrats who basically uh, were in place all the time these things happened that you just described. Well, first, I, I want to take issue. I disagree with the, the premise. The University of Michigan board, and they all get credit for it, especially the Republicans, has, has been very nonpartisan. So I don't think any of these issues are Republican or Democratic issues. In fact, the Republicans have stressed their desire to have tuition decrease and, and uh, diversity increase, um, but they haven't gotten it done. Um, and it's a lack of vision. It's a lack of commitment on everyone involved. I've uh, sat on many small and large private and non uh, uh, and public boards, and every board member is responsible for bringing solutions uh, to the main issues uh, of the company or the school um, and hiring the administrators uh, to fulfill that vision. And they haven't done it. And so it's my view as an experienced board member, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Um, <clears throat> but I have many concrete steps that the board can take right now to achieve better, including fiscal responsibility, decreased tuition for many of our students, and diversity. And I, I am confident that once these ideas are presented to the board, Republicans and Democrats alike will embrace them and support them. Do you feel the board over time has made good decisions in picking presidents like Mary Sue Coleman for a considerable period of time? And what do you think of the uh, job that the current president is doing? So every president in every position at the university, every person in those positions has their strengths and weaknesses. And we have benefited from many great presidents, including the one and, and, and Mary Sue in particular. Uh, but the area that they have failed on is holding tuition down and increasing diversity and maintaining what used to be an unwritten rule at the university, which is at least two-thirds of the students coming from the state. And so now I think it's time for the board and the president and all the administrators at the university to focus on those three issues. Uh, as you know, there was a horrendous uh, sexual predator scandal at uh, your sister institution, uh, Michigan State University, uh, over the past couple of years involving Dr. Larry Nasser, And I'm just curious, um, what if uh, this had happened at the University of Michigan or could it have happened at the University of Michigan? I mean, what is your perspective on what happened at Michigan State and how they've handled it and uh, how you would prevent anything remotely like that happening at the University of Michigan in the future? Well, it's a great question. I've been almost 200 events in the last two years as I've been running for this position all over the state, uh, and I, it's the number one question we get, even as candidates for University of Michigan. And frankly, what happened at Michigan is obviously a tragedy, uh, but I lay the responsibility at the feet of the board, ultimately. Um, the board should have known, and the board at the University of Michigan must know, and I will make sure it does if I'm lucky enough to be on it, that when you're running an institution, uh, whether it be a college or a car dealership, you have to identify uh, the things that are the greatest threats to the survival of your institution. And when you run a school, a hospital, sports programs that have women uh, and young girls, uh, sexual assault is one of those things that you must focus on. 
And, and when you do that, you have to have policies and procedures in place to make sure it never happens. And if God forbid it happens once, that that issue gets elevated to the highest level, to the board and the president, and tracked daily, if you have to, to make sure it never happens again. And they completely, apparently, failed to have those policies and procedures in place. Uh, when the board says, we didn't know, we didn't know it was this bad, we didn't know it was this pervasive, uh, that's an admission of guilt, of failure to do uh, the basics of what a board needs to. And then the second big uh, role of a board is to create a culture. And again, they failed that at Michigan State. Uh, they needed to create a culture, and I will make sure this happens at University of Michigan, that cares more about the students than the teachers and administrators. It's more about the patients than the doctors. Coaches. Okay, we're going to have to take another little break, but we're going to be back with Paul Brown, candidate for the University of Michigan Board of Regents, in just a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back with our wrap-up. I wish it could be longer with Paul Brown, uh, one of the Democratic nominees for the University of Michigan Board of Regents, and we've been talking about the impact of the Dr. Larry Nassar scandal on Michigan State University and what could be done uh, to prevent it uh, at the University of Michigan if something like that should ever occur. Um, And I just want to ask you one more question about it, and that is, I mean, do you think when this thing broke that basically uh, the decent thing for the members of the MSU board would have been is a mass resignation? They just should have all said, we resign, we failed. Well, that, that may have been more, uh, you know, my, my first kind of passionate reaction was just that. Um, ultimately, that may be, may be more shocking to the system of the Michigan state. Um, I don't know if any of them should stand for re-election. I guess I'll put it that way. Uh, at the very at the very least yeah well two of them uh who could have stood for re-election this year decided not to so yeah uh there are two open seats on the ballot statewide for michigan state university board of trustees this year uh two democratic uh nominees and two republican nominees and some minor party candidates um let me uh just uh, get to you because we've talked about your skiing and your spear fishing and your the important stuff the important stuff your idyllic youth and Petoskey uh, and your father, uh, Paul Brown, and your grandfather, Prentice Brown. But what have you been doing uh, since then? Uh, Where do you live now? How long have you been downstate? I think you live downstate now, but you've still obviously got this connection with Northern Michigan. That's true. And I really consider that my home and where my center of gravity lies. But I was lucky enough to University of Michigan as an undergrad, and that changed my life in many ways. I was a history major and then went on to get a law degree at Wayne State and then my MBA back at at Michigan. Um, I did a federal clerkship after law school, and then like a lot of students, uh, unfortunately, in our state, I had over $100,000 in student loans and had to move to New York City to work at a large law firm to try to start to pay that off, although I'm, I'm still paying my $117 a month. Uh, even in my age. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet a great uh, Livonia, Michigan girl working in New York City. 
my wife, Nicole Forrest, Nicole Brown, is really the, the, the interesting one of the family. She's an actress from Livonia and got a Leading Actress Emmy nomination when she was working on Guiding Light. And her and I, uh, when we were expecting our first, moved back to Ann Arbor, where we've been living the last 10 years. So what have you been doing the last 10 years in private life? Yep. Well, I was uh, in New York during the the Great Recession and growing up in a family where public service was talked about around the dinner table every night. I was looking for something to do to to help my state. And I got a call from then Governor Graham, who said, "I'm, I'm playing defense everywhere. I have a little bit of resources at the MEDC, the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, and I'd like you to come back and run uh, the capital markets group. And basically what we did there is invest the state's non-pension dollars uh, into companies in the state. Our job was to increase the availability of capital for companies in the state. And um, when I got there, it was really the depths of the recession. Banks were pulling loans from good companies who'd never missed a payment small tool-and-die, small mom-and-pop shops, Um, and, you know, two of my great heroes, one, I was lucky enough to know Steve Jobs before he passed, Uh, one of the great things he ever said was, all these institutions that seemed to constrain us were really created by people no smarter or dumber than you, and they can all change. And then, of course, the other is my grandfather who built the bridge when everyone else said, you know, you can't raise the money, the ice will sweep it away, and, and he didn't believe him, and he didn't. And so I went off to try to help make an impact on the credit crunch. And again, everyone said, you can't do it. This is the biggest bureaucracy in our economy, the banking system. Uh, but we didn't listen. And uh, with, with Governor Granholm's help and support, I went and created a program here in Michigan uh, called the, the State Small Business Credit Initiative. And it was, next thing I know, I was sitting in the West Wing of the White House explaining it to Larry Summers and his economic team. And then I was testifying before Congress explaining our results. And they created a $1.5 billion program, again, the State Small Business Credit Initiative, um, that said, basically, we will support any state that creates a program like Michigan's. And with about $100 million in federal support, we leveraged $500 million in uh, bank loans to small and medium-sized businesses. And by the time I'd left, we'd made almost 500 loans. I think they're up to 1,000 now. And at that time, we had had a single default. And these were all companies that banks had previously said were unlendable. And I knew they were wrong, and the program proved it. Uh, and it's one of the things I'm most proud of. Uh, I, I, after that, I, I started a small technology company with a good friend from northern Michigan, and we grew and sold it uh, to a public company out of Arizona, um, at which time uh, I joined a venture fund here in Ann Arbor. Uh, with three other uh, partners. Okay, let me switch gears. We've only got, believe it or not, a minute and a half left. I want to ask you about Line 5 under the Straits of Mackinac because you grew up there. And in fact, Line 5, I think, was built in 1953 side by side with the Mackinac Bridge. It was actually in place before the Mackinac Bridge was. Uh, What do you think about that? And what do you think about what the potential dangers are right now? Well, there are huge dangers. I literally grew up swimming and fishing directly over Line 5. And many of my family literally lived downwind on, uh, on, on the beach. 
uh, from line five. In fact, one of them uh, is uh, one one of my my cousins passed away from breast cancer, uh, and another is is battling it right now. I cannot say there's any link whatsoever, um, but uh, it's nothing but a huge threat, and I do not see benefit uh, accruing to the Michigan people for it. Uh, it's all going to Canada, yet we are bearing all the risk. And the recent uh, agreement, so to speak, although it has no teeth, uh, between uh, Enbridge, the owner-operator of Line 5 in the state, uh, it, it, you know, it's, 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 to say it's a joke is maybe an understatement. It has no teeth. They promise to do something in the future, which they don't have to, and it leaves us with an, an, not just aging, but an old uh, Line 5 for at least, at best, the next five years. So uh, you think it should be shut down peremptorily, I mean, pretty quickly. And if so, what uh, would be the impact for the state of Michigan? Isn't uh, a lot of the power and energy to the Upper Peninsula from Line 5? Well, some of it, especially there's some, I believe it's propane needs uh, to northern Michigan uh, through the Upper Peninsula is derived by either Line 5 or its sister line, which runs uh, parallel to it. And, of course, my greatest concern are the people uh, of the Upper Peninsula and the Straits area who are bearing the risk right now. And so uh, shutting it down may not, shutting it down today may not be a practical solution, um, but it needs to be one that is aggressively pursued in a way that does not hurt the people or workers uh, of the Straits or the UP for that matter. But I have seen uh, plans that can do just that. But your idea, I mean, your, your feeling about the idea of building this tunnel uh, under the straits that would surround the current pipeline and it would take seven to ten years to build is just uh, too much of a continuation of risk. I, that it is. It is. Whether a tunnel line under the straits is safe or not, I have not read any of the studies to know whether it is or not. Pipelines are, generally speaking, the safest way to transport uh, fossil fuels, liquids, and gases, um, and, and that's a reality. Um, but in terms of the tunnel even being able to be built under there economically, I can't you know, comment on. But waiting five to ten years uh, for a solution is, is way too long. Is all of this happening really because of the age of the pipeline? I mean, I'm just curious, what was the thinking in Petoskey in northern Michigan back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when it was built? Uh, did people feel that it was a potential danger even then, or did everybody just think, hey, you know, we're taking this for granted, uh, it's safe, and it's going to be a help to Michigan in that Enbridge is giving the state money to allow them to do this? What? I think it's a combination of the latter, that uh, they felt it was safe. But I think more so, none of us really knew about it. You know, there were signs at the shore where we'd go in that said power line or pipeline going underneath, and we didn't really think much of it. But as we've had to live with these disasters of spills, uh, you know, a huge one uh, in, in Michigan, uh, crossing, was it, the Kalamazoo River um, in Marshall several years ago, we now realize how dangerous they are. And when we see that the pipeline is now older than its uh, stated, uh, you, you know, practical working years, um, yeah, that uh, the circumstances have changed greatly. Okay. You know, we, we could talk about this forever, uh, line five and about Paul Brown's uh, own accomplishments in the private sector uh, and as uh, his vision and as a candidate for the University of Michigan Board of Regents. But 
We're out of time. I hate to say it. We've had a great conversation. I wish we could go on more, but thank you very much, Paul Brown, for being a guest on The Political Insider. Well, thank you. 